and welcome back to Creative Outcomes. On today's episode, we're sitting down with Dave Bunce. Dave is the current CEO of Morpheo, which is a marketing technology software. He is a public accounting survivor and was recently on the selling side of an acquisition, which is where we're going to focus on today's conversation. The why, the how, and the what we wish we would have known. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks for having me, Meredith. Great to have you. Great to be here. Good, awesome. So let's uh, let's jump right into things. So first, why did you sell the agency? Yeah, the decision to sell was was based on being very entrepreneurial, uh, and we had started to make connections and build relationships with people uh, through the agency that were bringing ideas and the next thing to us. Uh, we had been in business for about a decade as an agency, and really, it was it was time to let our entrepreneurial wings uh, fly. And, and so it was um, motivated purely by looking for something new. Um, so how did you guys find the buyer? Did they approach you? Did you just networking connections? What did that look like? Yeah, they approached us, uh, but it was actually pretty serendipitous timing. We had engaged uh, an M&A firm uh, on, I think it was October 20th of 2019. and. Three days later, we got a notice from LinkedIn, um, somebody reaching out to say, hey, I'm currently buying agencies. You came up. Can we chat? And it just happened at that same timing. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, the buyer reached out to us for sure. Okay. Did you know them at the time or like just this is a like peak? Yeah, it was geographic um, and it was mutual connection. Okay. So it was one of those messages you get when you say, Hey, so and so, I'm friends, or it looks like we're both friends with person X, um, and they had great things to say about you. Would love to connect and, and talk more about your succession planning. It was very much a a soft sell message. Interesting. You know? Interesting. Did you guys have a relationship with the M and A uh, who you had reached out to to like start the conversation? Uh, we we did. Yeah, we had a bit of a, a relationship there already between an executive there and one of our owners. Um, that conversation, and, and I can go into it in, into a bit of detail here. It, it was an interesting experience going through an advisor. Um, and in the end, you know, I, I would say an advisor helped the process more than hurt. Um, so just something to, that we can keep diving into. But yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that was not a, 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 an inexpensive advisor. So was it worth it to have the advisor? It, it's a big question. In the end, yes. Um, I think the question becomes, though, what or how we could have gotten that same value um, more proactively from our ongoing professional service providers. And, and not to make this just a, a plug for accountants, but um, <laughs> we, we would have... Go ahead. <laughs> Keep going. For sure. Yeah, no, no, no. Plug it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was an expensive... Uh, decision to go through the M&A uh, firm and the value that they ultimately provided was a lot of, of due diligence prep and, and a lot of, you know, advice that we could have been more proactive with through getting uh, better professional services earlier on in our, on our agency life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I, I uh, so that kind of tracks, I, I've been through uh, one um, on the sort of uh, client side or the agency side, one acquisition, and we also hired an advisor. And I would say my experience was very similar to yours, where it was like, in, in the end, it was definitely worth it. It was quite expensive. 
And I'd say the, pr- the, the primary value was like, you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. right? And so in our case, we didn't necessarily have any shortcomings uh, on the, you know, on our vendor side or, or any other relationship. Um, but it was like this incredibly nerve wracking kind of lonely experience where you get questions and you're just like, I'm not sure if that question is something I shouldn't worry about or is going to blow this whole thing up. Like you just don't know. And so having somebody who has experience, whether it's an M&A advisor or an accounting firm or somebody else who has been through a couple of reps, uh, if, if you don't have that, it's worth it. Yeah. That. And what I found in, in that discussion as well was it gave us a bit of a, an impartial intermediary for the negotiation. And, and I think for us, especially uh, myself being management um, and being the COO at the time, these were the people that were going to become my boss. So I'm negotiating on behalf of my former totally. boss with my new boss. And so having that intermediary, whether again, it, it be M&A firm, whether it be, um, you know, professional service provider um, of some type being involved in that um, and advocating for you made it a lot easier for me um, to maintain really strong, positive working relationships while still maximizing our value because there was definitely negotiation. Um, and it made it less uh, uncomfortable for me. So, so you said that they reached out to you on LinkedIn. Why did they want to buy you? They were just trying to to build, grow their own agency, or what did that look like? Yeah, so they they reached out. They're they're going through a bit of a leveraged buyout model where they're buying a few different agencies. Um, and right now, I think the portfolio their, their portfolio is at about ten or twelve businesses. Um, and really what they were looking for, what made us attractive was one recurring revenue. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I think everybody in the agency world keeps talking about that right now, but yep. yes, um, you know, two thirds of our business was AOR recurring revenue work. Um, and then selling projects to those people represented another 15 or 20%. So really a, a fairly strong, uh, predictable revenue base made us attractive. Um, and then the other thing I would say too that that they reached out to us, or, or part of the reason they liked it, was having uh, a bit of leadership succession. So I was COO. We had a CEO that was separate from majority ownership. We had options and, and variable comp in play, but you know we aren't majority owners, and so that made us attractive because um, from a transition standpoint, they knew that they could make this deal work and still have a functioning management team in play. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. sense. Uh, how did negotiations go? I know you guys were building, you know, working on Morpheo within the agency, right? Mm-hmm. And so what did the negotiations look like to, you know, that's obviously not included, that was not included in the deal, right? Right. The transition of Morpheo, yeah. So yeah. how did negotiations go? What did, what did that look like? Yeah, the, the biggest thing that came down to sort of negotiation was around adjusting and normalizing uh, the business results. And so now I'm going to put on my, my public accounting hat and talk. <laughs> and what is, is normal and not. And, and, you know, to kind of answer those, like, I wish I knew this scenario. Uh, mm-hmm. We had been running the business. I don't want to call it a lifestyle business uh, necessarily, but, you know, there were conferences for 20 people to go to Banff uh, running through the PL and there was the golf club and all of those things. Sure. Um, and w- which, you know, for us ended up being negotiation points of, of can, should this be adjusted or not? 
And in our mind, it was, yeah, this is all just us going and having fun. Um, And, you know, from the buyer's perspective, you know, they could definitely argue or say, well, did you take clients with you? And then we say, yes. And then they say, okay, well, you know, did you increase your revenue after you took them to said conference? Well, yeah, sure. Because we talked about these types of opportunities. Well, then, you know, you keep, you know, so it became um, a gray area uh, for what in our mind didn't need to be or, or in hindsight didn't need to be. Um, so that was one thing, you know, I think if we had started cleaning that up earlier um, and started to understand those implications or carve them out more clearly, uh, at least from a, a yep. reporting and, and uh, transaction perspective, that would have been something we would definitely do differently. So on the, um, I follow up on that, but first, uh, so on the negotiation, obviously there's like kind of, I mean, and you can tell me if this is how it went, but generally speaking, these deals are on multiples yeah. of EBITDA, right? And so what you're talking about is what is EBITDA, right? And in your case, you had what you would claim as not personal expenses, but not necessary expenses, right? That was dragging your EBITDA down. So the point is like what we're showing on our PL and actually should be much higher because we didn't need to do the Banff conference and all these other things. So that's like, Point one, and then point two would be like, what's the multiple I'm going to apply against that EBITDA to get to whatever the purchase price is? Did was there a lot of discussion on the multiple? Like, where did that come from? And is that how this thing was yes, valued? Yes, you're, you're right uh, on both fronts. That is how it was valued, and also there was definitely discussion on it. Um, the The way that we started, uh, or the way the the negotiation started, was the buyer said we typically do between three to five times is what they, they anchored it. Cause we, you know, we, we let them anchor the, the offer uh, mm-hmm. so where they were um, yep. in there. And then from there we said, okay, you're at this to this. Well, remember, you know, part of the reason you want to buy us is recurring revenue, separated management team, you know, talking about average length of client relationship. Uh, we are sitting at, you know, AORs of three plus years. Um, which for marketing yep. industry uh, that has turnover yep. that's solid. Um, so yep, we use yeah. all of that to uh, negotiate our way up from their anchor, um, and and yep. you know ended up in a reasonable spot where we got them to their highest end, if you will, um, in their range, yep. and that was kind of the moderate or expected range for us, for sure. Was uh, was Morpheo involved in that com- in the negotiations at all, or was it always like just off the table? Yeah, what's what's interesting about that is we had carved out the IP um, prior to, and that was one of those you know smart moves in some ways. Depends on on what you know we wanted to do, but we we made it flexible in the sense of you know Morpheo was an internal project for us just to give context, right? So it yeah. was an R and D. Yeah, I was going to ask you to just describe it. Yeah, so Morpheo is a marketing technology platform that's focused on, you know, analyzing digital marketing results, providing people with alerts and and notifications based on performance. So we used it as a way to um, gain efficiencies on our marketing team to say, you know, how do we improve our service levels and how do we get more revenue per person, basically, right? So the way that that conversation went was at that point, we knew we wanted to pursue it as its own business. So we weren't going to put it into the deal. Um, But what did become part of the negotiation or or the package in the end was 
the licensing of the software to the buyer because it was considered a sort of competitive advantage slash, you know, a business yeah. driver. Mm-hmm. That in. Yeah. Makes sense. So if you had to go through the sale again, what would you do differently? Yes. Uh, the one thing I think we could have done a better job on was, and to give you sort of deal structure, um, we got our, our multiple, um, but there's different components of that, right? You've got your, here's some cash today. Mm-hmm. Here's some cash in a little bit for a networking capital adjustment. Yep. Then there's the, let's see how the business does. Um, then we also took uh, some shares in the parent company back. Okay. And there was also a non-controlling interest piece that was retained as well. Um, I, I think if I was to do it differently, the deal got a bit overly complicated because of all those different yeah. streams. And, and they ended up in there because, you know, everybody has different goals and motivations. Yep. Um, and obviously the seller wants as much cash up front and as little risk and the buyer wants, you know, the longest. The of that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, you know, what we ended up doing to, to make the deal work was we, we fit within this middle ground that kind of tried to serve everybody's needs. But what it did was create uh, complexity in terms of the the types of consideration that we got for the sale um, that that made it overly complicated and confusing. Um, so that was the that was the issue there, and and that's one thing I definitely do differently, especially on you know the non controlling part is like give us the earnout, let us you know I understand there's some risk, so let's let's take that risk with you to some extent on on you know the last multiple or whatever you want to call it. Um, but let's not tie this in so much that it, it's, um, it's limiting in the future. All right. You talked about this a little bit offline, uh, but I think it'd be interesting to talk about here as well, which is, um, and I think interesting for the folks who are listening to this that are not only thinking, you know, years ahead that they might get some liquidity and be purchased, but also that they might look for means of uh, acquiring agencies to get inorganic growth. And that's something that you did at your agency as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about the strategy behind that and how it worked for you guys? Yeah, for sure. So we did, uh, the way we looked at our acquisitions were, were twofold. One was either, um, you know, complementary offerings, like what skill set did we need to round out? Um, or what geography uh, did we want to cover that, or what markets did we anticipate would have great growth um, that were underserved? And so, for us, we made two acquisitions. We looked at, I can tell you the due diligence folder. We, we went through 15 different potential acquisitions over the course of my five years. And that's everything from tire kicking to, you know, truly LOIs signed and, and full gamut. But we probably looked at, yeah, 12 to 15 businesses uh, to acquire for our inorganic in our growth. And we would vet them based on a few things. One was, as I said, you know, where do they fit in our skill set? Are they going to round out our offering in a way that will give us a client base that we can cross sell to and vice versa? Uh, what geography, you know, leadership team, management team was a factor as well. And then also um, from a succession standpoint, you know, what was the opportunity? Are we talking to a 58-year-old woman who has been doing this for 30 years and she's, she's done and, you know, she's motivated. 
Or are we talking about, you know, somebody who's in their mid forties and still has a lot of energy and motivation. And, and that's a very different negotiation as well. So um, that's sort of the, the criteria we looked at in our cases. One of the acquisitions that we actually made was a distressed agency um, where they were you know, essentially uh, closing up shop. Um, they had good talent in a good market. That was an expensive market to find talent in. Um, and also one that represented opportunity in our minds. So we picked it up for a song and a dance, to be honest. Um, I, I can't even begin to tell you the, the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it cost us in the short term. <laughs> in sure terms did. of everything from, you know, the executive time, the travel, the, um, you know, change management, severance costs that we did take on. We didn't take on much, but we had some. There was a lot of baggage, to be honest. But what's interesting is we did it in 2015. And for context, we sold the business at the end of 2019, early 2020. Um, so we okay. had enough time to clean that up and turn it into value proposition on that. On the There's no way we could have bought that yeah. a year before sale and, <laughs> and been in a good spot. So you just got to align those strategies, yeah. right? Don't. Don't buy and then think you can do a quick flip. <laughs> um, yeah. Not a house. yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah. The thing I learned on that is uh, we had to call the client list pretty aggressively. But what we got through it was an executive team or a leadership team that was solid. Uh, and as I said, in a market that, that was expensive to get into. And so in the end, you know, they became um, the most profitable running business unit they became the highest growing business unit for us and truly, you know, one that, that we owe a lot of the success to in the sale because of it, it took a lot. Um, and we yeah. learned some lessons along the way, but that was an interesting one to, to say, you know, if, if you're going to go down that route, you've got to be just mindful of, of what you're getting into. But if you're up for a bit of a turnaround project, it can turn out. Okay. What year did you buy the second agency? Uh, Twenty second, so even earlier. So that's okay. that it was. It was uh, very much we used that to create our growth and our you know mode momentum, uh, and then we held yeah. that for a couple of years, realized the growth, realized the strategic vision around acquiring these businesses, and then then prepared to exit. Um, did. Yeah. Did you know at the end of those two acquisitions that you were wanting to sell, ultimately sell the agency? Yes. The, the, the owners knew, and as I said, it, it's, it, it was an entrepreneurial group. Um, they had always known that there would come a day or a time um, mm -hmm. to exit. So we did know that. Yeah. I, I, I can't give us that much credit that it was perfectly uh, planned, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> So it's part of the grand vision sometime, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, that's, and it's also good. I mean, it's helpful to consider uh, that, you know, there are always several potential avenues for ROI when you're buying, especially at a smaller agency that isn't as much of a slam dunk, right? But in addition to just the client list and the geography or the market that you're getting into, the talent, especially in this particular labor market, uh, if you have an opportunity to buy an agency with strong talent at a reasonable multiple, uh, that may be the exclusive reason that, that might carry the day and, and, and the, you know, the revenue and the client base is yeah, great. 
So if you could give someone a piece of advice that's setting it like a year out from acquisition and then like a three to five year out from acquisition, what, what would those pieces of advice be? Uh, start to plant the seeds with your key people. For us, for example, you know, nobody other than myself knew that the transaction was happening until about a few weeks before it closed. Um, and so, you know, it had always been talked about and there was always this notion that we are thinking or the owners who said always one day and that they had transitioned leadership to me and our CEO because of that. But, you know, I think as much as it, it might scare people and I get it, um, I think giving at least a bit of, you know, that one year out, start to talk about, you know, what the future holds, make it not cryptic. You know, it's a fine line, but giving people yeah. the, the sense or, or notion that, you know, there is more out there and, you know, there is ways that we can grow or there are, you know, if it's somebody that's, again, that 58-year-old saying, I'm not going to be around forever. Um, yeah. Or even, you know, we are looking at being bigger and better together and saying, you know, what does the future hold for us? We always asked at the agency, no matter what, we asked one of we, we asked the same question in every strategic planning year we went into, which was, are we should we become more of a niche and should we shrink? Should we stay the same and try to squeak out margin? Or should we grow, grow, grow and focus on top line? And that was the the guiding principle of every year we asked that question. And then that would set us the course for the year. And so we weren't transparent with the team about that though. And I think that would be what I would say, even the three to five years or the one year was we knew coming in or two years out, it was let's just squeak out the EBITDA margin because we're getting, we're thinking we're going to sell. Let's try to squeeze it out. Right. To maximize. So then it became a thing where, you know, the team wasn't aware as we were trying to squeeze margin and and really calculate the, the expense, not at a one-to-one, but at a five-to-one or a four-to-one. Everyone's like, well, what? It's right. five grand. Like, let's just, you know, it's like, in my head, I'm like, no, that's 20 grand. But, you know, that, that's yeah. what I would say to that one is, is one, you know, have open, honest conversations, at least at the leadership level about what that looks like. And then the other thing I would say that, that a year out um, is, is getting ready for that due diligence and getting your books in order. Um, and again, I'm putting on my accounting hat, but, the data room, if you will, that people like to use the terminology for. It's really just, do your accounts reconcile? Do you have some paperwork? Do you know where your articles of incorporation are? Do you have any stinky employee lawsuits lingering? Like, just clean up is Mm -hmm. the other one I would say. It's just clean up. Um, Get that that house in order. Um, Because when it comes time to negotiation, if you know your stuff, and you're organized, there is definitely an intangible value and confidence that the seller uh, or the buyer takes in that relationship where they know that you've got it, they have confidence in you. Um, and if they're trying to finance the deal and, and you're talking to, to banks or, or you know, private funders, um, it gives them confidence. And, and so you don't want to do anything yeah. outside of that. So those would be the big things I'd say, you know, think about in advance. Yeah, we've mentioned that on other podcasts too, or other episodes of this podcast of like 
time kills deals. So the longer that it takes, like if you can have all of the your your data room up and running a year out, and it's like here, like let's keep this moving. Oh, I was gonna say we closed our deal um, at the end of February 2020, and two weeks later, like, the world shut down. Like up here in Canada, we were like locked down, state of emergency. Yeah. yeah. And so we talk about yeah. time killing deals. I mean, we yeah. had to get talk it done. Yeah. Um, and if that had lingered another yeah. six weeks, who knows where we would have been. You know, you also hit on something that I think is actually really interesting. And, and that was true for us uh, as well in our acquisition, which is not only, again, not only is um, not having your deal room together and not having paperwork in order, uh, something that's going to drag out and create time that will kill a deal. It's also an opportunity to like do, to demonstrate that you guys have your shit together, that this is a leadership team worth. And, and I would say in our case, and I bet to some degree in yours as well, it's, it, is, it is contributory in the negotiation process. As you're trying to push your multiple forward and you're going through negotiating the LOI, you got a sense that like we're getting a really, this, this group is on top of their game. You're going to be more willing to flex a little mm-hmm. up in order, to, in order to get that team. So that's a really, really good point. I don't think a lot of people think of, you know, the compliance as an opportunity to drive higher value, but yep. it can be. And we also had on that note, you know, our our buyer was going through the list of our customers and where we said, okay, our average lifetime, you know, of a, of a client is three, three and a half years. They would say, you know, where's the contract? And, you know, if we didn't have a contract and back, you know, back, yeah. you know, in 2012, we shook hands and there it is, you know, yeah. then it's like, well, yeah. you know, don't know if we can count that. And, doesn't yeah. count. Yeah. So that was that was another one of just contract cleanup and getting into good good habits there. Yeah, we always say uh, whether you want to sell your agency or not, you should build a sellable yes. agency, right? And it's all the things that you talked about, not just having like your shit together, but also having a leadership team and succession planning. Um, and uh, so, anyways, that you're just sort of underscoring, I think, something that we feel pretty strongly about. Cool. Um, I'd like to take a few minutes and just have you, like, what are you doing now? Let's talk about Morphe. Yeah, we keep talking about Morpheo, and it's definitely in this space, and it actually has an opportunity to help our listeners in a somewhat different yeah. way. So, I don't know, tell us a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, so about it. it's focused on basically the, the idea of risk mitigation and, and peace of mind and protection on, on your digital marketing results. And it came out of mistakes and, and hard lessons we learned at the agency where, you know, junior intern puts in a wrong daily budget in Google ads. And instead of spending a thousand a day, we spent 10,000 a day and it went three days without being noticed. And Oh, there we go. Cost us 25 grand of client media. Oh, um, you know, or it's a real thing I've been through like more than a half a dozen times. I mean, that is like a real example. That's right. (laughs) You remember those mistakes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. you know, that was the the notion was we were sitting there as an agency going through those pain points and, and also having tough conversations where you get into reporting meetings and you, you say, you know, we're crushing it this month, like impressions are this and, you know, we, we got some good clicks and, you know, the client then just goes, well, revenue's down. <laughs> and you're like, uh, <laughs> we got people to your site Sorry. <laughs> um, and just that mismatch yeah. of expectations. So we built Morpheo to, to purely yeah. focus on, you know, protecting marketers from the risks associated with failures in digital marketing, whether that be, you know, conversion tracking down, whether that be credit card payment failing, et cetera. And, and it's all about how do we 
give marketers information to make informed decisions. We're not like a automation platform per se, where it's like, plug us in and set us and forget us. It's, we're going to give you information. We're going to protect you. We're going to give you alerts. We're going to, you know, provide you really good reporting. And then for you to make the informed strategic decisions, which is ultimately what marketers want to do, right? Is like, if you want to be strategic, you want to be creative and, and you want to have time with your clients. You don't want to be buried in looking for the problem. You want to be solving the problem. And that's what Morphe helps you do. Awesome. That's awesome. Love that. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Um, if you could just, you so want to plug you. where the audience can find you, uh, yeah. LinkedIn. Yes. So they can go to morpheo.ai. So M-O-R-P-H-I-O.ai. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, David Bunce. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. It's been a lot of yeah, fun, man. Appreciate Great it. Chat.